Hi, I'm Super Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. If you've not listened, where have you been? Come on, get involved. We talk about all things energy, sustainability, and of course, net zero. We're here to talk about business and what it can do to make the planet better. We're here to talk about science. We're here to talk about you. So if you'd like to be involved, then do drop us a line. Listen in, tell your friends, tell your business partners, subscribe. And for all your news around net zero, follow us on futurenetzero.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Hello, in this episode, someone said, it's the economy, stupid. And it's true. The economy is part, not just part, it is everything that will drive our net zero transition. It's the reason to do it. Because unless we have cleaner growth, we won't have a cleaner economy. And the economy and net zero are intertwined. We need to fund it. We need to make sure that it makes business sense for companies and organizations to invest in it. And it makes business sense for us that we can afford goods that are cleaner, drive cars that are less polluted. So what's the state of our economics right now? Bearing in mind all the things that have gone over the last couple of years since the 2019 commitment to net zero. I'm delighted to say the special guest on this week's Net Hero podcast is Vicky Price, who's a chief economist who's been all around the world, uh, works for the British Chambers of Commerce, is a professor and sits across the world, the economic temperature of the country, let alone the world. Vicky, hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you very much for inviting me. Let's just talk about where we are now. Economists, scientists, politicians, you could say they're the, the triumvirate for where we want to go. And, and I'll, put, I'll put society aside because we have scientists who say, here's the science, 1.5 degrees. We've got to make sure we get on top of it. We've got politicians who say, well, do the public want to take us with it? Yes, I can feel the temperatures that the public want to make some change. So we've got to do some policies. And then you have the economists who say, <laughs> oh, 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 have you thought about the bill? We all know the tensions that have gone on uh, in government for decades between number 10 and Treasury. Where do you see, as an economist, some people have said it's a folly, it's just unaffordable, the whole net zero transition. What's, what's your take on it, on, on that basic premise of doing this and making it work for us economically? The interesting thing is that uh, when this was looked at from an economic viewpoint, you're quite right to make that distinction between the way in which scientists think and the way in which politicians think, and then, of course, the economists. It was a, a, it, mainly a science issue. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we'd hear all these uh, forecasts of what was going to be happening, but nobody had started estimating what the impact would be economically if we left it too late to do anything about it. And and then uh, Nick Stern, Lord Stern now, when he was um, head of the Government Economic Service, and I was his deputy at the time, did this climate change review, which put some figures against what the costs might be and what the benefit, if you like, of acting immediately, if we possibly could, to try and hold this increase in temperatures uh, would be. And if we left it to later, the calculation was that the cost was going to be significantly higher. Uh, and that brought the whole economics linked to science, if you yeah. like, a little bit like what we saw during the pandemic, mm. where people are now saying, we wish we had used more economists while we were doing all these uh, you know, statements to <clears throat> the public and it was yeah. politicians and scientists and, and see what actually the cost of any of those measures that were being introduced then would be. But it's similar there. It's sort of elevated 
the understanding of what needed to be done. It also suggested that huge amounts of money would need to be spent now. Now, what we left out of this is, of course, no we in terms of doing that that work. But when we debate economists, um, politicians, and scientists, is is the ordinary people. So Correct. Who are going to have, of course, to undertake you know changes that they have to do in their behaviour, but also in the environment in which they operate. Uh, which could be actually quite devastating if we don't do anything, or it could actually be quite benign if we did. But there is a cost involved, and I think that's what you were suggesting in the Correct. beginning and your yeah. introduction. And the problem with, with individuals and the way in which, of course, you then calculate the cost and benefits of acting now rather than later, or acting later rather than now, is that <laughs> most people have a time preference in their horizon, if you like. So they prefer to to benefit now from something rather than you know worry about what may happen later. So uh, if you... <laughs> That's our nature, isn't it? If we can put it... I do it all the time. If you can put it off till tomorrow, let's leave it till tomorrow. I'll start, I'll start that diet tomorrow. I'll do this yeah. exercise by tomorrow. I'll, I'll clean the garage tomorrow. Anything. <laughs> it's a bit like that. But then, of course, everyone now appeals to, you know, what's going to happen to your children and grandchildren and you need to do something. Uh, but you need to make, uh, to make it also attractive to people to think that, in fact, what they're doing is going to be quite positive for them, both in the short, medium and longer term. By positive, I mean financially. So if you are able to uh, use super energy in the future, then yeah. look at what will happen to your bills. The trouble is that lots of people don't really believe that mm-hmm. necessarily. And the move to electric vehicles, for example, which is happening now, problems with charging those vehicles. Now, what's going to happen later? I mean, the interesting thing is that a lot of government revenue depends on collecting fuel duty and Correct. everything VAT yep. you pay on on petrol more generally. And if you don't use that, what is going to happen? Is it going to become much more expensive to to charge your your electric vehicle, which is already more expensive than buying anything else? So although the people have embraced it, uh, they're interesting vehicles. They do all sorts of you know they don't make much noise, and that's a bit of a danger, of course. But <laughs> for pedestrians, but how do you make that attractive? And if you can't charge your car, and if the, the the national grid isn't capable of of operating with this, if your planning restrictions are such that you can't actually have enough charging points, as we've been hearing the last few days. Uh, in motorways, where just connecting to the grid has become so difficult, when it takes ages for anyone who wants to oh, sell anything to the grid, to 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 actually be able to do that. So, uh, all those planning issues have to be dealt by by the politicians, if you like, and by local bodies. Uh, bowing up to a point to local pressure as well. So local democracy, we say we really want it. On the other hand, we want to accelerate planning. So loads of things will have to be rethought in terms of how we run both local government and and decision making and what we dictate, if you like, from the centre and the investment that's needed with it. Because the investment, a lot of it comes from the private sector, but it needs to be encouraged very significantly by by uh, governments. I look back at the Stern report and I met Nicholas Lord Stern at COP in Glasgow and uh, had a brief word with him. And and he was kind of, I think he was ambivalent about the Mm -hmm. progress. I mean, that's what, 2005, 2006. So we're heading towards nearly 18 years, nearly 20 20 years since it it came out. The world was very different back then. And then there have been several economic shocks. First of all, there was a 2007-8 crash, global crash. Then we've had the global pandemic We've had the cost of the crisis, the war in Ukraine. Looking at that and looking at the figures and, you know, we, we, we all know about the human suffering, but if we just park that, we just look at the numbers, right? Is what was planned in the Stern report actually unsustainably financially now? 
And this is the reason we've had delays in things like uh, building of Hinkley. We've had delays in the rollout of kind of the insulation that was supposed to happen, smart meters even, you know, the, the take up of EVs, you talk about it, mainly it's all fleet, right? It's not normally people because they're flipping expensive, like you said. <laughs> so are, are we actually working on a plan that was, is still probably scientifically right, but just economically, it's just in the red zone right now? The costs are significant. There is no doubt about that. We will need to be spending you know, huge quantities of money. And yet, uh, here we are with the Conservative government attacking the Labour proposals to spend the, over 20 billion a year on green investment, which of course we absolutely need to do. So I'm not I'm, I'm not now backing anything that Labour or, or the Conservatives are saying, so it's completely apolitical. But the Stern report did suggest huge amounts of investment were needed. And uh, in fact, the, the general prognosis is that unless we spend something like globally uh, between 300 billion and 500 billion a year on doing something about both mitigating and also adapting to climate change, then we're not going to get anywhere. And we're nowhere near that. I mean, you know, you could talk about a percentage of GDP and people say, you know, I've, I've said, read some economics saying most countries will need to spend about five to 10 percent. Well, the people are going to spend that much, are they? And you're right to point out that because of COVID, because of the energy crisis, uh, you know, the, the debt to GDP ratio in most countries has increased very significantly. So Enormously. the question is, yeah. is there going to be enough headroom? But also the costs of, you know, you mentioned nuclear, for example, but also offshore wind in terms yeah. of the turbines and everything else has gone up very, very significantly. So whatever you were expecting to pay before, I mean, look at, at what happened in the UK with HS2. I mean, costs uh, rocketing sort of continuously. Uh, it's not just, of course, inflation, but it's also the way that contracts work, it seems. They always are more expensive. And there is some technology as well on the nuclear side, which hasn't exactly been tested completely because we're trying something new. So uh, there are serious concerns about uh, whether some of the things we were hoping were going to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels may just either not happen or not prove as effective as we want to. But we have made huge amount of progress. No, no, and I don't doubt that. But you, you said right at the beginning, you know, that, and we, we talked about the, the pressure the politicians are under. I don't think there's many politicians who kind of doubt the science now, apart from a certain slightly orange-haired person who, who, who was in charge of America. But <laughs> generally, people kind of think this is, this is where we're going. But if you go to India, you go to China, Brazil... You know, I was talking to a lady from Poland on the podcast just, you know, a couple of days ago. It's a very different economic picture of what they want out of this net zero transition to what we want here. And I've spoken to people from around the world and there's almost like two, three, four tier net zeros. You know, in certain countries, developed countries, they're moving in a certain way. Other countries, they're still trying to bring their people out of poverty. And if they have cheap oil and gas and fossil fuels, particularly, as you said, with the crisis right now, then why won't they? And why shouldn't they tap those resources? So is the feeling, you know, when you look at it, uh, are we actually running several parallel forms of trying to get this, which are all governed by the economics of each territory in which the, these governments, states are operating? 
Yes, there is a certain amount of that. But of course, if you look at uh, you know, COP28, which is happening yep. this week, yep. what you've got is a very substantial increase in the number of countries, at least, that have agreed to meet the, those net zero targets. And we're also committed to providing some of the finance that is required. So I spoke before about mitigation, adaptation and so on. There was supposed to be, and it was agreed in 2009, that there would be something like $100 billion that would be moving from the richer countries to the poorer countries to allow them to at least uh, adapt with um, all the changes that are taking place or adapt to those changes through whatever measures they need to to have. And, and now, of course, the debate is going to be, can we make sure that that figure, the $100 billion, is is reached, which so far hadn't been, because, of course, all these issues that we just discussed, whether mm. it's COVID or anything else, has reduced the capacity of, of big, even richer countries to do something. But then also how to compensate countries for what they call now the loss and damage. Yes. Which uh, will have happened or has already happened due to climate change. So that would require even extra money. So so the sums are rising and, and that's that's a serious concern. And of course, in some countries which have suffered, particularly in the last few years, it's very difficult to find that type of investment to do anything major on this, even though World Bank, IMF and, and lots of others are quite involved in ensuring that there is there, there is funding on this and, and support. But what you're seeing is that, yes, of course, we worry about China opening more coal-fired power stations, but also they're investing heavily in nuclear, for Absolutely. example, and in, and renewables. And, in renewables. Yeah. Yeah. and they also are committed, or so they say, to to moving out of, of fossil fuels at some point. But we do know that even at the end, even when you're achieving a zero, you're still going to need quite a lot of energy that is going to be provided by uh, oil and gas. And uh, the question is, what can you do, you know, if you're not going to change people's behavior and we're seeing of course in the west that behavior has changed significantly we're seeing that businesses are indeed themselves investing more in that area and they there's a lot of naming and shaming even though we're very worried about greenwashing of course going on in other words you know people are saying they're doing things when they're not and and we have the whole esg which is the environmental and social and governance sort of bodies of investors um who are becoming rather disillusioned about this whole sphere but yes so so what needs to happen is of course that <clears throat> politicians continue to 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 push and have targets that are sensible that they have regulations which um, companies understand and that they are the ones who start investing and changing the way in which they manufacture because at the end of the day if the expectations are that you have to reduce your emissions as a manufacturer by a certain time you're going to have to invest and 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 have all these things in there which you know hopefully are going to make are going to make a difference but there is a lot of the technology that we still don't know so what people are now thinking is that perhaps since we can't necessarily uh, you know, stop a growing uh, economy like India, for example, to to need to consume more energy in every form, any form. Yeah. Perhaps what uh, what we need to do is just think of the technology that captures that uh, yes. carbon and then do something with it. Uh, and possibly what you do with it could be quite positive. In, yes, in we've, we've covered that. Ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But we don't know how how costly that is going to be still, and 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 so that's it. so accounting for that or thinking that perhaps technology is going to take over and give us the solutions we want, so we can carry on as we are now. It's probably unrealistic. It will probably do a certain amount, but there is a lot more that needs to be done. You mentioned the costs or to businesses, but to um, uh, economies. I mean, the interesting thing is that even when you look at renewables in order to get anyone to invest like we've seen with in the offshore field oh yes we had subsidies we've had to have subsidies for solar for absolutely absolutely it means that individuals are paying extra yeah. you know we're going to see in the uk 
our energy costs go up again by 5% in January yeah. uh, because the electricity cap has been recalculated due to wholesale price increases, mainly because of what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean, but also OPEC cutting oil production. And that's going to be reflected in people's bills. And, and of course, to get anyone to, to even build the nuclear power station, you have to offer them quite a lot in terms of the price that they're going to get for their, for their energy at the end. To get offshore uh, wind... Oh, planning takes about 10 years, doesn't it? <laughs> and we know that the previous auction here in the UK mm. failed completely failed. because yeah. they couldn't guarantee a, a good enough price for anyone who might be investing. Well, now, of course, they've upped the cap on that as well. So the consumer will still be paying, even though the interesting thing about the economics of renewables is that at the end of the day, the marginal cost of producing an extra unit of electricity or from any of those is zero. So in order to keep those companies producing since the cost is zero so therefore the cost to the consumer should be zero you give them you know quite a big cash incentive which means that even the benefit of moving to, to renewables which will be cheaper in the future disappears let's talk about a couple of things it's almost like a rapid fire because i think a lot of people will be very interested in in your views on this something i've had many a time discussed on this podcast and what we do on future net zero a carbon tax could we have a global carbon tax? Could it work? I thought at COP in Glasgow that that was going to be one of the things that came out. There was lots of talk from economists about pushing for that. We've had, you know, EUTS trading schemes. We've had various things, kind of offsetting schemes. And this sort of kind of a market, but not really. Do we need a global carbon tax? And could there even actually be one? We do need it. Uh, most definitely. And I think it was also in the climate um, uh, report, climate change report that um, uh, Lord Stern that we talked about before uh, produced. That, that has proved to be a bit elusive. There are indeed, as you rightly say, different carbon taxes in different places. And there is a scheme, of course, that exists in, in, in Europe, which is now being tightened. Uh, so, so we have not reached that. And I think it is absolutely essential. What we're talking about instead is having ca uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, yes, such yeah. as sort of preventing things that we have offshored where people are producing things using more energy than perhaps we would have done otherwise and emitting a lot of carbon. Uh, we bring them back in, of course, to, to the UK and sell them. Uh, but at least we're meeting some of the requirements that we have set ourselves internally and also the EU has set. This is why it, people it makes, find it very, very, yeah. like, they call it greenwashing because they can say, oh, I've, I've offshored yeah. all of this and I've saved my carbon. But you're not. It's still being emitted somewhere else, isn't it? Absolutely. So there should be a proper offset that mm. you, you use. But this offset has also come into disrepute because apparently the price that is that is looked at on the offset front is considerably lower than what a carbon price you know, should be. So, yes, we do need a global one. Uh, but if you start having different systems in different regions, which mm -hmm. uh, affect trade, if you like, and also penalize some of the countries to which you have offshored or outsourced all sorts of things, and of course, lots of people depend on it, then you're creating a, a very distorted market across and trading flows are going to be affected as well and we know that trade is, is is really good so something else needs needs to give maybe a global carbon tax but there is a suggestion that this carbon tax and even the way in which you do your border adjustment mechanism on the carbon front should be layered so that less developed countries yes, get charged less uh, so and there have been all sorts of suggestions from the AMF and others on how that layering if you like uh, can actually work Next question. Should we just say, looking at all the figures that are involved and all the things you've just outlined here very clearly for us, is this a really a job for globally, for governments? And this is the argument that, you know, fraction of the Labour Party still believe 
let's renationalize energy in other parts of the world. There are still state systems. Some say you cannot have what we need to do because of exactly what you've just said, because to encourage private companies to do it, you have to give them so many subsidies that actually the consumer is paying anyway, the state is paying. So is this really a challenge where states just should just take over? If you really want to do this and go, right, economically, no one will do this. We have to go to state intervention, just the way that we built the electricity systems around the world, the water systems and all of that. It was all built by the state. Is that actually the real problem here? Because we have such a world that's built on the capitalist models of investment and uh, you know, return that actually what you're looking here is investment, but such long-term returns. The only people who could actually tolerate that would be a state. Yes, I think the state can generally borrow more cheaply or has been able to borrow more cheaply. But of course, things have changed uh, yeah. recently with a very uh, high increase in, in yields, which means in government bond yields, which means that the state has to pay an awful lot to, to borrow. And of course, we've seen what's happening also with the debt repayments, which are affecting quite considerably our um debt to GDP ratios, you know, basically what you fork out each time to pay for your for just having that debt. So it's become considerably more expensive. But yes, in general, it is cheaper for the state to to borrow. And that's a good argument for why lots of things like public goods, if you like, that we call them, should be financed, as you rightly said, infrastructure and so on, utilities by the state. We have, of course, here privatized quite a lot of them, but they're being yes. regulated, supposedly, so that uh, there isn't an oligopoly profit emerging. Now, you may argue that that hasn't really worked particularly well, and also that even those companies went out and borrowed a lot when interest rates were low and, uh, and now have issues with with their debt. So it can happen very easily also, you know, debt problems in the private sector as well that, that, that uh, worry us. And of course, what we end up doing when there's a crisis is indeed renationalizing, which yes. is more or less what, ha what has happened with our rail uh, network, which of course stopped operating at all in during COVID. And, and now the whole system has changed. So the government, well, no, basically, we, we own uh, the railways right right now. It's slightly complicated, but anyway, we do, even though we subcontract the, 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 the managing, if you like, the, the managing of, of the various lines to, to, to the private sector. But it does give you that problem. In order to be able to do that as a government, you need to spend a lot of money, borrow and then spend a lot of money. And that has always been the concern as what it would do to, to the ability of governments to continue to borrow. Uh, but in any case, they would have to subcontract the doing to pri the private sector yeah. anyway, which then yeah. takes less of a risk. So the whole point of privatization is that you encourage that sort of risk taking in a way, but also you encourage them to invest with, with money, which the public sector perhaps wouldn't have been prepared to do. And of course, when there are crises that cut um, what they spend, as we're seeing right now in terms of public services, which do not look like they're going to be doing particularly well over the next few years if current plans uh, by the government are indeed uh, fulfilled, uh, which is a which is a real concern. So, so yes, you can uh, renationalize, but you're then still going to have to spend an awful lot. So, yes. the best way at present would be to to incentivize, which is exactly what's going on in terms of offering good prices at the end, but also regulate so that those profits are are contained. Uh, and there is a question as to whether our regulators have necessarily, you know, d done the right thing in every uh, sector where the regulators exist, and we have a number of them. And, and that needs to be, I think, followed very, very closely looking ahead. But there is no doubt it is going to be costly. And subsidies are being offered for development of various new technologies and so on. And the truth is that it's only those with, with deep pockets or those who can borrow very easily in their own currency, Correct. like the, yeah. the, U, the US, yeah. which are able to do these big, big programs of subsidies like what is called the IRA, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is basically attracting loads and loads of... This is the criticism we've been throwing back at, you know, 
the Tories, Sunak, whoever's in government right now, you look at it and I doubt if Labour get in, they can really have the headroom to, to change this. That people say to do this, you need th exactly that. You need a, 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 like they have in France, like they have in the US, these big state funded subsidy programs. Is, this is the killer question, but is all of this really, dare I say, all about the middle classes? Because if you look at where people are poorer, if you look at people in this country who are poor, they don't give a damn about driving an EV. They're just trying to pay their bills to not freeze. They're just trying to make sure that their kids can. And all that's happening is the bills are being loaded. It's this idea of kind of, is, is the actual weight of this going to be borne by those who are the most vulnerable? Because they live in the worst homes without the insulation, without the infrastructure, without transport links sometimes to go to take public transport so they can cut their footprint. Where do you see on that that some people say, actually, what we're doing here is this just a lovely chattering classes argument mm. for net zero? It's a very good point, and you're quite right that the pain has been felt at the lower end of the, yeah. of the income. Oh, the income, yeah, so the income scale. But of course, the government does subsidise and does, through the benefit system, support those uh, at the lower income brackets. There's, there's no doubt about that, and that happens, of course, across, across Europe. Uh, you could, though, argue that uh, here in the UK, we seem to pay a high price for electricity. That is the case elsewhere. We have a very weird system in terms of how we price it. But the EU is trying to also change their own system, which is pretty similar in a way. But individual countries have subsidised yes. uh, the consumers a lot more. Also, uh, the interesting thing is that energy costs for businesses are considerably higher here. That is the case in Europe and certainly considerably higher than the US, where they are basically self-sufficient. So we've ended up, of course, if you're passing quite a lot of those costs in the final prices of anything you produce, then obviously prices are higher for everybody and our inflation is higher. And that, of course, hurts people at the lower end, particularly since they spend most of their income on goods and services. Even though, obviously, middle class, as you said, the chattering yeah. classes, their savings haven't done so well, although recently that's changing too. <laughs> so so I think the, the difference is that I think in the UK, certainly when energy prices went up very significantly after the war in Ukraine, we didn't do anything very much to stop people's concerns about that yes. I mean, remember we had to wait until trust was 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 made prime minister before <laughs> the energy price cap was introduced by which time loads of people in europe had done precisely that yeah. so it has left i think starting from the point that we were discussing in the beginning uh you know lots of differences in different countries and therefore their attitudes to to all this uh, but you the interesting thing is that at least age-wise what you find is that the view about environment is pretty widespread. So, yes, so that's the young, the old, yep. which is quite positive. And yeah. people have changed. There's more view. awareness, definitely, than a ever lot. before. And I like to think that economics has had something to do with it. <laughs> of course. Um, but there is a lot more awareness and, and behaviour is changed. But that in itself isn't enough. It, it will do a certain amount. But the interesting thing is that, you know, there are, you know, Competing regions now trying to see whether they can do it better, whether it's, you know, China in a way, but Europe with its own sort of green deal, I think it's called, spending a lot of money on uh, giving to countries, individual countries from the, from a central budget. Yes. Yeah. It just gave uh, the EU has just given uh, tens of billions to to Italy uh, to focus and, and invest on. On green energy. That's just one example, despite the fact it has a very large debt to GDP ratio, but it's getting it from the central pot. And all, loads of other countries are benefiting too, you know, whether it's Greece or others. Um, 
we're not in it, of course, uh, right this minute. Uh, but the US has I like the ability. I that, right this minute. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> has the ability to spend a lot. Yeah. And uh, the NGOs, when the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, was announced, and you saw the, the, the huge amount of spending that's going to take place, uh, yes, of course, they're more. And also long term. He, you know, he set a target. Uh, and that may all disappear. Exactly. That that gives a confidence, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the NGOs welcomed it. And the yeah. reason why they welcomed it, and I was very surprised, is because now we see that money will be spent mm. on, on the green front. Of course, if there are improvements in technology, they can be spread across and you can see some benefit. And if people then go and, and, and uh, as the US hopes, produce in the US, that's a benefit to the US economy anyway. And it will mean more green stuff being put in the sense that manufacturing will be done in a more green way. It's not that they produce more green things, but that they do things differently. But that, of course, makes a contribution to reducing emissions in the longer term. So so the fact that there are these big regions, and it does make one think that there is no way that each individual country, going back to the UK, whether we spend anything very much or not on this, is going to make huge difference to no, and then this the climate the, change yeah. outcomes. So yeah. why don't we rely on the big regions doing their thing, if you like, and, and just be part of it and, and accept that we have to share everything? Let's end where we began, economists. Uh, isn't there a joke about if you get four economists or five economists in the room, they'll give you like different scenarios? I, I can't remember what the joke is. No, no, and... the joke is even if you get one economist, you get lots of different answers. <laughs> <laughs> It is at the, the set at the beginning. It's the economy stupid, a famous phrase from a certain election way back, nearly thirty mm. odd years ago. At the end of the day, that is it, isn't it? Because you know our mantra is better business, better planet. And if you do all the things, it all comes down to money. Money to invest in cleaner energy and cleaner food and supply chains. Money to invest in goods and services. Money to allow companies to make profits that they can re ingest, try and improve the world in terms of areas where they're really suffering from the effects of, for example, tourism by offsetting some of the damage. Economically, do you think the case for net zero has been made? And I don't know if that's a really tricky question for you to answer, or you think just still the jury's out depending on where you are. Well, it's interesting uh, that you phrased it like this. Um, I have written a book myself called um, "It's the Economist Stupid Economics yes, for Voters." It's <laughs> Economics for Voters is the subtitle yeah. because indeed um, people are are questioning all these things. You know, does it make sense to do one thing? Does it make sense to do another thing? I don't think anyone doubts it. Everyone wants to live with cleaner air, and but they just they're going. How can I pay for it? I think the economic arguments are not necessarily listened to. And you know, as I said at the beginning, if you have a time preface that says you know, I want to do something now rather than think about the future. And when you realize that even doing something good costs you quite a lot, yeah. because yes, you're going to get some benefits over the longer term, but when you calculate it all, it's actually quite high uh, what you have to fork out in the short term. So the government needs to intervene and, and, and support it. And there is a lot of interest in getting that government help. And we've seen a program, for example, in, in, in Germany that started, which is again, a little bit like our green insulation thing here, which ran out of money immediately because everyone applied for it. It suggests yeah. that people want it. They would mm -hmm. like to do something about it. If they get the help, they will do it. And if they get the sort of proper arguments, they, they will also do it. But if you're constrained, you have a cost of living crisis, the last thing you can do for the short term is 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 spend money on, on something which might have an impact in the future. So it needs to be made more. And I'm afraid the cost of the government is going to remain quite high in terms of supporting those activities. Now, whether 
a lot of the rent, if you like, needs to go to, to big firms that profit from it and exercise power saying we're not going to do something unless you pay us this, that and the other. Mm. That's, a, that's a question that needs to be addressed. And I think what, what, what individuals are seeing is that in those areas, there, are, there is some big money being made by some players and they still have to pay quite a lot themselves. And, and is, is it fair the way that distrib- the distribution, if you like, within the economy of those rents and profits um, and costs is borne out uh, in a fair way? Last question. Just a simple yes or no answer. Will we be able to afford net zero by 2050? We'll have to. <laughs> Spoken like a true economist. <laughs> Vicky, thank you so much for joining us on the Net Hero Plus. It's been an absolute pleasure. If people want to find out more, you've got some books out. Go on, give them a plug because it's always good to know where people can pick up and learn more of what, what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, my latest book is actually called How to Be a Successful Economist, which is an interesting one, but it just shows the different skills that you need in the different aspects of what the economy is doing. So whether you're in the public sector or private or international, uh, which I think is quite useful because you do lots of maths at university and then don't actually know how to use it in economics properly. So doing that. But before that, I read quite a lot about women. So I've written a book called Women versus Capitalism just goes to show that that the free market system we have just isn't helping women at present so amongst other things and uh, also quite a lot on on, on manufacturing because i've focused a lot on productivity when i was working for the government so uh, I've, I've also written a co-written a book on uh, rethinking or re, re repositioning manufacturing exactly You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.